You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. Aside from uh, a fairly distinctive cult of ministry, I think one of the things that attracted me to preaching in particular was an amazement with the power of words and the mouths that speak them. I have a collection of CDs of the greatest speeches of all time. It was made in the States, so there's a lot of U.S. content, but not totally U.S. content. And sometimes I will just listen to some of them, and they're absolutely mesmerizing. Some are by Winston Churchill, who was a marvelous orator. It was Churchill who came out with such great lines as, there is nothing more exhilarating than to be shot at without success. While in cabinet, he had antagonistic relationships with a number of people, one being Lady Astor. At one point, she yelled at him, Winston, if I was your wife, I would put poison in your tea, to which he fired back, and if I was your husband, I would drink it. <laughs> the power of words, right? Apparently, there is a tombstone outside of uh, Wichita, Kansas, on which are scraped into the, or inscripted on there, uh, I told you I was sick. (laughs) The power of words. I believe that it is in recognition not only of the power of words, but also the words or the mouths that speak them that caused James to write what he did that was read so well for us this morning. And I want to tell you how much I appreciate those of you who actually have your Bibles open when I'm done and and who have them on your device. I looked around, and some of you had them on there, but those who keep them open, I appreciate it because it makes me accountable to you. It makes me do my study more carefully. But what if the canon of Scripture had not yet been established here? You couldn't bring your Bibles to church, whether in paper or on your phone. You would still really need teachers, wouldn't you? In fact, you might need teachers then more than you do now because you would have nothing to read and study on your own. That's probably why teachers were so highly uh, esteemed in the early church. You look at the spiritual gift list in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4, and you'll find teacher as a gift in all of them because they were so badly needed. They were essential. I'm not convinced that times have changed, uh, that in our age where truth is both relative and hotly contested, we probably need teachers more than ever before today as well, at least accurate teachers. But if one was speaking or teaching and there wasn't a Bible in the listener's lap to keep the the teacher accountable and accurate, can you imagine the harm that could be done either on purpose or accidentally by a teacher? I think that's partly why James says what he does in verse 1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. It would appear as if there were those in James' church who saw how vital the teaching ministry was to a church that didn't have a Bible. They knew that there was esteem to be had, and so they were grasping at opportunities to be teachers. And the church could have ended up with teachers who were making reckless statements, saying things that weren't entirely true, misleading assertions. So in response, rather than questioning their motives for wanting to become teachers, 
teachers, he gives what I think is one huge reason why you would not want to become one, a reason that weighs on my heart every week when I try to do this, and it's in the second half of the verse. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. Why? Because you know that as such you, you will incur a greater judgment. I find it interesting that James uses the word we, we shall incur a greater judgment, and not the word you, you shall incur a greater judgment. In doing so, he not only identifies himself as a teacher among teachers, he also identifies himself as one who will incur a stricter, greater judgment. When Jesus was talking to John, or to the crowd about John the Baptist, he says, Truly I say to you that among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. In saying this, Jesus acknowledged that all within the crowd had been born of women, but compared to them, John is greater. That is the word, greater is the word that James uses to describe the judgment of all who teach. We're all going to be judged on the words that we say but compared to a non-teacher, a teacher's judgment will be greater. Why the fuss? Well, I suppose that James could have been concerned over the matter of pride, that there were people who wanted teaching positions in order to build up their egos and make them seem more important than they really were. Maybe he was concerned about the matter of influence and he wanted them to, to wrestle with the sway that their teaching could have on the lives and behavior of those who listened. Maybe he was concerned about the matter of hypocrisy, that teachers were telling people to do things that they were not doing themselves. And yet, the bottom line is that it was not a matter of pride, though it could have been. It wasn't a matter of influ influence, though it could have been. It wasn't a matter of hypocrisy either. But rather, it is a matter of the nature of the heart and how that manifests itself. And so he says in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. And I think what he's doing here is expanding the picture. He's got the little group of teachers and he's trying to get bigger because he includes himself among those who stumble, but he also says we all, so he's including all men and women who stumble. The word stumble seems like it's an accident, like you trip over a, you know, some, something in the sidewalk or you trip on a child's toy on the stairs. But you do a word study of that, and what James is talking about here is stumbling in sin that is a result of thought. It is not accidental. It is intentional. And if we all have a problem with stumbling and sinning that is a result of thought, there is one sure way that it's going to manifest itself, and that is in the misuse of the tongue. In order to demonstrate how serious this misuse matter is, James gives us three reasons why the tongue is so dangerous. He leads us into the first reason by giving us a number of images. The first of these images in verse, is in verse 3 where he says, now if we put bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. I think that the significance of this image lies more in its location than in the bit itself. Because what it tells us is that a horse's mouth controls the direction that it goes. 
the direction of its life. Kind of like words. Have you ever thought about how the words that other people say to you have or will determine the direction of your life? I'm afraid I've got some bad news for you. Determines the direction of your life. It's a boy. Well, that determines the direction of your life. You're fired. Determines the direction. Guilty on all charges. What others say certainly determines the direction of our lives. But what we say can transform the direction of our lives as well. Even just saying yes or no can have repercussions, be they good or bad, that we may have to live with for the rest of our lives. So the tongue is dangerous because it determines the direction of our lives. And what is remarkable and even frightening is its small size compared to the other organs of our body, and the, the small size makes no difference at all. Verse 4 says, Behold ships, though they are so great, and they were. If you've read of some of the ships, like in Acts 27, the one that Paul was shipwrecked on, 276 people and a load of wheat to boot. For that time, they were huge. And yet, in contrast to these big ships is a small rudder. And whether we're talking about the Titanic or the Bismarck or the Edmund Fitzgerald or even the new love boat, they are all directed by a very small rudder. So he says, behold, ships also. Though they are so great and driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder. In order to make that image even clearer in Greek, he renders that verb to, direct, to be directed by in what is called the perfect passive tense. Without all of the mumbo-jumbo, what that means is that a ship is always steered by the small rudder and never has any control over where it wants to go. In the same way, the tongue is the underdog organ of the body, fights for control over direction of your life despite its disproportionately small size. It's dangerous because it determines the direction of our lives. And there's a second reason why it is so dangerous. If you were to drive near Hagersville, Ontario, February 12, 1990, you might have seen two boys, aged 16 and 17, at the Tire King Tire Recycling Limited plant there, or whatever it is. They might have been singing the old chorus, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. Now you know I'm not in choir. I don't know if they sang the song or not. I do know that they were playing with matches and they lit a little can of gas on fire and they threw it into a stack of tires. And by the time the chemistry and the wind had taken their effect, there were 14 million tires on fire, give or take, in an area the size of 18 football fields. And because of the petroleum-based substance that they're made out of, it resisted the effort of 250 firefighters from all over Ontario and the water bombers who were dropping chemicals on it for an entire week before it was finally out and it smoldered and smoked for months. Experts declared that it was a major environmental disaster at the time, and it may still be one of the worst Canada has ever had. 
It caused the evacuation of 4,000 residents fleeing the harmful fumes. And at the time, it was estimated that it would cost between 30 and $50 million just to clean it up. All of this because someone was playing with fire. And James says, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue sets on fire the course of our lives and is set on fire by hell. The second reason why the tongue is so dangerous is because it is destructive. It not only determines the direction of our lives, it is bent on destruction. When I taught at Briarcrest, one of the courses that I taught there was a bunch of sections of first years in an introduction to the church course. It had a bunch of names, but that's basically what it was. And often I would begin the course by having students give me a one-pager. Tell me about your church, tell me about your experience of your church, where, where it is, its size, all that stuff, so that I could get an overview of who I would have with me for the whole semester. I remember getting one paper from a freshman girl that said this. In my old church that I've now left, someone started a rumor about me that I'd been sleeping around. I swear this never happened, but many people in, in the church believed it. Neither of the pastors gave me a chance to defend myself, and so my parents also turned away from me. It was the worst time of my life, and I tried suicide. Destruction of church fellowship, destruction of a family, almost a tragic loss of life by suicide just because somebody had a big mouth and didn't understand that they were playing with fire. Somebody's tongue was uncontrolled, untamed, which is actually different than all animals, according to James. Verse 7, every species of, burst and, of, burst, burst, of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison, untamable. Mark chapter 5, Jesus and his disciples come to the country of the Gerasins, and the passage reads that when Jesus came out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He'd been dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. And then he says, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. This is the same word, subdue, tame that James uses to describe our tongues. Chains won't work. Ropes won't work. It's like an uncontrolled animal ready to destroy. Tongue is dangerous. It determines the direction of our lives. And it is bent on destruction. There's a third reason that James gives us. Have you ever read Peter's uh, testimony in Matthew chapter 16 where he confesses to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm just so impressed by him. Only to see that sentences later, 
He's trying to stop the same Christ from doing the work that he was called to do. In the first instance, Jesus compliments him. In the second one, he says, get thee behind me, Satan. And you, you just kind of wonder, how on earth could good and evil come out of Peter's mouth in a matter of sentences? Well, because not only does the tongue determine the direction of our lives, not only is it bent on destruction, it's full of deception, full of deception. James says in verse 9 that with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men made in the likeness of this same God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. I think it was the first sermon I gave here. I talked about unity, and I mentioned that I would go on tour with Briarcrest ministry teams. That on the road that long and in that many churches, you have access to things that you would never think possible. <laughs> we were at one particular church, I remember, and I thought that the service went well. The girls' trio sang well. People seemed very responsive. So I was really surprised to see our pianist sitting in the front row crying. I wondered what was wrong, so I gently asked her, and after she calmed down, she said, you know, after the service, a lady came up to me and with her husband and said that they really enjoyed the worship service, especially the first part, which was just congregational singing, really enjoyed the worship service, that is, until Sarah got up and began to play the piano. And then her lack of expertise as a pianist ruined the service for her and her husband, and she just thought that Sarah would want to know that. She thought, right. I didn't, don't think she thought at all, at least not intelligently or graciously. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. But what it showed me was that both blessing and cursing, praising and cursing, can come from the same mouth in a short period of time. Do you know what that means for us? It means that we could have sung, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, hey, we did. And then you could use your one tongue to attack somebody else, rip someone else apart before you have even left the sanctuary, before you've even left the building. Why? Because the tongue is deceptive. And you know what? Nature isn't even that way. He asks three rhetorical questions, James does. The answer to all of them is no. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Mm -mm. Can a fig tree produce olives? No. Or a vine produce figs? The answer is of course not, because nature produces the same thing consistently. Not so with the tongue because it is deceptive. The tongue is dangerous because it determines the direction of our lives. It's bent on destruction and often full of deception. So what are we supposed to do? How do we as Christ followers respond? The best-selling book written by the American philosopher Ellen Bloom is entitled The Closing of the American Mind. His argument throughout the book is that students have been given too much freedom to choose what they want to take in their classes, and so they graduate knowing much about little, and because they have not had a classic education. Now, if God were to write a book 
entitled The Closing of the North American Mouth, what would the main issue be? I think it would have to be our hearts, don't you? I've, in, I've enjoyed shooting as a hobby off and on for 30 plus years. Given my druthers, I prefer, and a block of time, I prefer to reload my own bullets. There's a science and a craft and skill, and it's just enjoyable. At a high level, the process is rather simple. You start by taking the brass that doesn't have a bullet on top, and you take the spent primer out of it. You replace it with a new one. Then you bell the top of the bullet, or of the brass, so that a bullet can slip in there. And then you fill, before you put the bullet in, you fill that brass with a certain amount of powder that is accurately measured, carefully measured. I use a precise electronic scale. Once it's in there, you put the bullet on top and you crimp it, and it's ready to go. Now, if you were to look at the powder by itself, it just looks like pepper or some kind of spice that you would use on a piece of meat on a smoker. It looks so innocuous. But you put that powder inside a casing and put a bullet on top and put it in a rifle and pull the trigger and something will fly out of there that can really do significant damage to paper downrange. Jesus said in Matthew 12 that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The powder that is in your heart. Now, I, I know that we all look so saintly and under control today, but I can guarantee that the day is going to come when someone is going to pull your trigger. What will come out of your mouth? Only you know that, or perhaps those who live with you. But I guarantee that whatever flies out the end will be an expression of that which is filled your heart, that powder. And so maybe we need to take some time today to ask God to weed out those things in our hearts that would cause us to say things that will hurt or damage other people or groups, even our brothers and sisters in Christ. A thorough heart cleanse. But that's not all that we can do. I remember when my youngest son was probably three years old, I think he was three, he hit a phase where he would not stay in his crib at all. I would have him on my shoulder and I would think that he would be asleep and I would motion my wife to come over and look and you know, the jaw sideways, breathing slow, he's asleep. Take him very carefully into the room and gently put him in the crib, you know, and walk back avoiding any creaky spots in the floor and just close the door so carefully. And often, I would get maybe one step, and he would have monkeyed his way up the bars on the inside, down the bars on the outside, jumped down, run to the door, opened it up. We even thought about putting Vaseline on the... <clears throat> I, don't, I, don't think we, I don't think we did, but we sure thought about it. But this wasn't a one-week thing. It, it went on. And my no-holds-barred, take-no-prisoners manner of parenting you know, didn't work very well. So I would take him back and put him in bed and give him a lecture on the sin of disobeying your father. <laughs> you know. Luke, I am your father. Get, get back into bed. 
And aside from expending a lot of energy and perhaps waking the neighbors, it did no good at all. Then one of Melanie's friends who heard about our parenting challenge said to her, why don't you just put them in bed and say nothing? And it worked for a little while. <laughs> but during the short time when it worked, God impressed very strongly on me. You know, sometimes, Bush, there are times when it's just better to keep your mouth shut and say nothing. And he was right, as usual. So maybe today we not only need to ask God to weed out that which is in our hearts that would cause us to say things we shouldn't, we need to ask him that through his Holy Spirit he give us the fruit of self-control, knowing that sometimes our mouths are just better left shut. Lastly, maybe this morning we need to come to grips with the damage that we have already done and ask for forgiveness. Gordon MacDonald in his book, The Effective Father, says this, a 42-year-old man has allowed me to look into the inner recesses of his life to see what has made him what he is today, a man who is frantically working his, his, himself into exhaustion, one who spends every dime he gets on artifacts, impressive artifacts of luxury and success, a volatile human being whose temper explodes at the slightest hint of disagreement. As we talk, I asked Tom to tell me about his childhood. Here's what he said. At one point in his impressionable boyhood, when he was displeasing his father, his father said to him, Tom, you'll always be a bum. You're not going to amount to anything. You're just a bum. Tom goes on to tell me that every time he and his fathers had angry words, the same words would be repeated with regularity until it burned its way into the boy's spirit so deeply that like shrapnel embedded in flesh, the words could never be removed. Thirty years later, Tom still suffers from his father's verbal malpractice. It drives him day and night. I don't think any of us would have to think too long to recall things like this spoken to us. In fact, it may have come to mind as I was telling Tom's story. The person who said it might be dead, but the words live on. They might be in another province or another continent, but it's like they're right here. You try to forget, but you can't sometimes because the, the repeat is on. You know, I've seen exchanges like this in every place I have ever ministered or worked, even here, where thoughtless and intentionally cutting words were said to somebody to their face, behind their back, on paper, words that indelibly burn their way into the minds of the person never to leave but for the healing grace of God. I've seen it. I've been a victim of it more than my share as a pastor, and I've probably inflicted far too much of it myself, for which I've had to apologize and ask for forgiveness because I was and am so deeply sorry. Why are we talking about words? Because 
COVID and political social fractures in our world have become a wellspring for verbal malpractice. You've heard it, you've seen it on the news, the anger. The ability to have civilized conversations about a lot of things at many levels from government to families without thoughtlessly labeling people as a way to write them off is fading fast. We're sometimes caught and other times the cause of stress fractures in institutions and with people who should matter a whole lot to us. And I can't help but believing that the time is right now and in the weeks to come to pray that Jesus in his grace will cleanse our hearts of that which would cause us to explode and harm others. To pray that the Holy Spirit would bring the fruit of the Spirit into our lives and allow us to have self-control so that we think circumspectly before we speak. And finally, that he would just give us the guts, the courage to go to someone and ask for forgiveness because of what we said to them or about them to others. I mean, think about it. If we cannot control our tongues as the people of God, what hope is there in the world that has resorted to a combination of yelling, labeling, lying, and canceling? Right? And we've got an advantage. We have the indwelling Christ whose example we are going to celebrate and remember today in communion, who was mocked and screamed at by religious leaders, people in the crowd, those who hung beside him and yet said almost nothing except, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He lives within us and with the same power so that we can act the same way, to control our tongues and to speak words of grace and forgiveness. Nico, I'd like you to come up and lead us as we remember this Savior within us. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.